Good morning. Wonderful to have you here this morning. Wonderful to be here together and be able to worship God and have fellowship with one another. I'm thankful that you can be a part of that. I know that I'm thankful that I can, that uh, we're all able to do that today. Uh, you should have found in your order of worship uh, a little card like this that says, Becoming Part of the Glen Allen Church Family. Uh, we put these cards in the order of worship periodically. Uh, simply to explain because we always have new people among us who may not know uh, what it is to become a part of the church uh, and a part of the body of Christ and part of the body of Christ here at Glen Allen. And so uh, there's an a explanation here on the card. I, I won't glorify the explanation too much because I know the guy who wrote it and he's not that bright. But um, it, it's an attempt to, to help you see what scripture says about how to follow Jesus and when you follow Jesus, then you're part of the body of the church, and uh, you can then identify with a local congregation like the uh, Glen Allen Church. And it is our hope and prayer that you will uh, do that, that you will consider it. Uh, and if you've already made up your mind that that's what you want to do, and you've uh, read the card, or you've uh, uh, heard the gospel before, and you want to uh, be baptized into Jesus, we want to encourage you to come at the, uh, uh, when we sing the invitation song and let us know that, or to come and tell me that after the service or at any time you'd like to, or uh, talk to Chris about it or to Charlie or to Kent, and uh, we'll be more than delighted to help you uh, to give that obedience to the gospel and become a part of the family. Uh, we are to be the family of God, and what a wonderful blessing that is. It may come as a surprise to us, to learn that Daniel didn't understand some of his visions any better than we do. You know, I was a little bit reluctant to have the service start off with the reading of the first 14 verses of Daniel 8, because if you haven't been here and haven't been into the book of Daniel much, you can just hear that and think, what? <laughs> and so I think it's a little bit helpful to us to understand that Daniel was probably standing there seeing some of these visions and saying, what? only in Hebrew, um, and, and not understanding many of the things that he saw. And as a matter of fact, you and I probably understand some of these visions better than he did. And the reason for that is that uh, we have the hindsight of history and we have additional scripture that explains it to us. And Daniel didn't have that. He's just seeing it fresh. And seeing it fresh, he's not sure what he's supposed to make out of it. But he wanted to understand it. Uh, after seeing the sequence of visions in the first 14 verses, he said, I sought to understand it, chapter 8, verse 15. In the next verse, he hears a voice say, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. And then in the verse after that, understand, O oh man, that the vision is for the end of the time. So there's an emphasis here on understanding. But then go down to verse 27, the last verse in the chapter after he saw the visions and heard the explanations, he said, I was appalled by the vision and I did not understand it. He did not understand it. So you and I had the advantage of being able to understand some things that Daniel did not understand. This reminds me of Peter's statement in first, or 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, when he said, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be ours Search and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. 
The prophets searched and inquired, but they didn't always know who it was they were talking about. You see, a prophet's job was not to understand his message. A prophet's job was to deliver his message and do it faithfully. And that's what Daniel did. He delivered the message, even though the message he was seeing was for, for the time of the end. That's what he did understand, is that the message was not about now. It wasn't about his time. It wasn't about his day. It was for the time of the end. Now, from our vantage point, it's not hard at all to see what Daniel was being told. Because it's very specific concerning uh, events that would happen to Israel in coming days, somewhere down the road in the future. And they are so specific that we can identify them from secular history as well as from what's said here in the text of Daniel 8. They are so specific, in fact, that many have said that Daniel could not possibly have written this book in his own time, that it must have been written uh, in the second century BC, not in the fifth century BC, because it's just too accurate, it's just too precise, and that he must have been writing it after the fact, but stating it as though it were a prophecy. Well, all I can say about that is that's a pretty low view of the inspiration of Scripture, isn't it? And if you do believe in the reality of predictive prophecy, then uh, that view is completely unnecessary. But these are very specific prophecies, as we're going to see. So what did Daniel see, and what, what was it about? He sees three main characters. He sees, first of all, a ram. And remember that in Daniel, these animals generally symbolize kings or kingdoms. Right? We've seen beasts and, uh, of all kinds already, and the same thing continues here. Daniel saw, in this vision, saw this vision in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, he says. Now, that would have been approximately 553, 552 B.C., somewhere around there. So this is more than a dozen years before Babylon fell to the Medes and Persians. All right, so when he sees this vision, it's going to be at least another dozen years before the events that we read about at the end of Daniel 5, when Babylon falls to the Medes and the Persians. Notice that the vision, he says, is set in the city of Susa, the citadel. Susa was the capital not of the Babylonian Empire, but of the Persian Empire. So Daniel already sees himself in Persia, in the capital of a Persian Empire that isn't there yet. And as he is uh, seeing this vision, it's another indication of the eventual fall of Babylon and the rise of the Persian Empire. He sees this ram with two horns, but one of them is longer than the other. Apparently for a time there existed a combination of the, what we call the Medo-Persian kingdom. Because Daniel is told in verse 20, the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Medea and Persia. Why is one of them longer than the other? Because the Persian kingdom soon overpowered the Medean portion of it and the Medean kingdom vanished. But the Persian kingdom rose to power and prominence. It began as the Medo-Persian Empire, but the Persians soon overpowered the Medes. So that's the vision of the ram. The ram is that Medo-Persian Empire that turns into simply the Persian Empire. Then the second main character that Daniel sees is a goat, a male goat, he says, with one conspicuous horn between his eyes. And this is a very powerful uh, goat. He says it came out of the west 
And uh, it attacked the ram. And when it attacked the ram, it broke off both horns and it trampled the ram and nobody could rescue the ram. He just ran all over him, just stomped him to death. And pretty soon that ram was no more. Verse 8 says, then the goat became exceedingly great, but then the big horn was broken and replaced by four horns. All right, so he starts off with this one big horn between his eyes, but shortly after he tramples the ram, that horn is broken off, and then four horns take its place. What's that about? Look at verse 21 in the explanation. The goat is the king of Greece, we're told. Not only are we told he is the king of Greece, we're told that this great horn is the first king of the Greek empire, and that would be none other than Alexander the Great. You've heard of him. And in this vision, uh, it we're accurately, is accurately described Alexander's conquest of the known world of his time, especially his demolishing of the Persian armies. The Persian army outnumbered him 10 to 1, and his armies attacked them and, and just virtually destroyed them. And that was the end of the Persian Empire. Alexander was quite, a, quite an amazing figure in history. He became a general in the army of his father, Philip of Macedon, when he was only 21 years old. 21-year-old general. How would you like that, Charlie? 21-year-old general. All right? At the age of 26... He famously wept because he said there were no more worlds to conquer. By the age of 26, he had conquered the entire Mediterranean basin. And he wept because there were no more worlds to conquer. Richmond had not fallen yet, but he didn't know about that. <laughs> and then at age 33, he suddenly died. So all of this happened in such rapid succession, and that's what's described in the vision. By the age of 33, Alexander died and his kingdom was divided among four of his generals, the four horns that replaced the one great horn. And they became four separate kingdoms that arose out of the Greek empire. But none of them was ever as great as Alexander, and that's what the vision said, although one of them thought he was. Look at verse 23. In his own mind, he shall become great. And that's the one called the little horn, character number three. The little horn becomes the focal point of the entire vision. Verse nine, he arises out of one of the four, we're told, and he grows exceedingly great. And he uh, pushed his way toward the southeast and toward the glorious land, or the NIV says the beautiful land. What do you suppose that is for Daniel? That's none other than his homeland. That's Palestine. That's Judea. And so he pushes toward Judea uh, and he conquers it. And this little horn is none other than a Syrian ruler who came to be known in history as Antiochus IV. Now, Antiochus was a descendant of one of those four generals of Alexander who took his place when Alexander died. None of them were ever as great as Alexander, and Antiochus certainly was not. In fact, he wasn't a great man at all. But he was cunning and deceitful and manipulative, and he managed to gain control, and he managed to create something of an empire for himself. He was never as great as he thought he was. In fact, he thought he was God. He liked to call himself Epiphanes, which means literally manifestation of God. 
or the glorious God. He decided he was God. And that's what verse 23 says. In his own mind, he shall become great. And so this glorious land that he pushes toward uh, is the land of Palestine, which he took control of in 170 B.C. And when he took control of it, it was a major problem for the Jewish people. He slaughtered tens of thousands of people. Tens of thousands of people just slaughtered them. And he partly did that simply because he was mean. He partly did that in order to reduce the population. He partly did that in order to have a greater control, but he partly did it because he just knew that he could. But in the Jewish mind, even that was not the worst thing that he did. The worst things that, he, that Antiochus did were to try to abolish the Jewish religion completely. Now, this is how we know he wasn't very bright. Because if you try to tell people they cannot believe something, what do you think they're going to do? So he tried to tell the Jewish people, you can't believe in your God anymore. You can't practice your religion anymore. He made it illegal to possess copies of the Torah. He made it illegal for them to meet in synagogues for worship. He made it illegal to circumcise their male children. He took the rightful high priest out of his place and picked someone else who was not at all qualified and put him in uh, instead of him. But those were not the worst things he did. The worst things that he did was that he went into the temple, into the Holy of Holies. Now, you recall from Leviticus 16 that there was only one person on earth ever allowed in the Holy of Holies, and that was the high priest. So Antiochus just marches in to the Holy of Holies, and there was an altar in there, and he slaughtered a pig on it, simply as an insult to Judaism and an insult to God. And then he erected a statue of Zeus right there in the temple. And he forbid the carrying out of the daily sacrifices, the regular offerings, the morning and evening offerings, which were just kind of the lifeblood of the temple. And so he was making temple worship impossible, and he, he stopped it. And that's what was called the abomination of desolation. He set up that abomination, that abominable idol to Zeus, and he stopped the worship of God in the temple. But he committed the ultimate transgression that made uh, this, the temple desolate because he made it unfit for the worship of God. Well, he eventually fell. Verse 25 says, he shall be broken, but by no human hand. In 167 B.C., a group of freedom fighters led by a man named Judas Maccabeus, rose up against Antiochus. They had no army. They didn't have any weaponry to speak of. And their, their defeat was all but certain. But somehow, over the period of time from 167 to 163, they were able to defeat the Syrian armies of Antiochus IV. By no human hand, he was broken off. And he disappears from the scene of history. But Daniel is also told that although his downfall was certain, that this period of oppression and this lack of worship in the temple would last for a symbolic 2,300 mornings and evenings. A lot of discussion about what that means, but it sounds like quite a long while. 
that there would not be any worship of God in the temple. Well, the last thing Daniel is told is seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. It's not for your time, Daniel, he's told. It's for the distant future. So what Daniel was seeing in this vision was not just the rise and fall of some kingdoms as Nebuchadnezzar had seen. What Daniel was seeing was the trouble that was going to come upon his own people. The insult that was going to come upon his God. The persecutions that would arise for his own people, for his homeland that he loved so very much. Remember when he went and prayed, that he prayed toward Jerusalem. And now he sees in this vision that there are going to be days of great disaster for that homeland and for his people. Well, this is not in the Bible just to give us a history lesson. What applications can we make from this vision and its explanation for our own time and for our own lives and for our own faith? What do we learn here that we can put into practice? Let me point out a few things to you. First of all, we should never under underestimate the extent of evil in the world, especially when it comes to opposition to God. Never underestimate the extent of evil in the world especially in opposition to God. When people decide to rebel against God, they essentially become their own God, and there is no end to what they might do because they will do whatever they want to do. They will do whatever they think is appropriate. For some people, that will not be anything bizarre or disastrous or, or hateful toward others, but for some, it will be horrible. For someone like Antiochus, it was maniacal. Never underestimate the extent of evil. Antiochus magnified himself against God to the point that he thought he was God, and he acted like it. And he wasn't content merely to ignore God or even to deny God, but he wanted to attack him. And he wanted to attack his people and put a stop to their worship. We read about things like that in history, and we think, surely nobody would ever do that again. We read about events like the Holocaust, World War II, and think surely nobody would ever do that again. We read about the deaths of millions of people through rulers who, who just have no regard for human life and no regard for God, and we think surely nobody would ever do that again. What we need to understand is that Satan doesn't just not like God. He is at war with God. And his goal is to destroy everything that is of value to God. And that includes his people. That includes his people. Communism prevailed in Eastern Europe for some period of approximately 70 years. And during that period of time, atheism was the official philosophy. I wonder why that is. How did that come about? That you had this, this ironclad, dictatorial kind of rule over people's lives, but in order to have it, you couldn't have God. And you couldn't have people worshiping God. And so all the churches get turned into museums of culture, but not places of worship. 
Atheism had to go along with it. They had to oppose God in order to gain dominion over the people. That's why Peter, in his first letter, chapter 5, verse 8, warns us to be sober, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Do not underestimate him, Peter said. A second application is only God can ultimately defeat evil. Only God can ultimately defeat evil. Now, you and I can resist evil, and we must. We should, we must, we have to. In fact, James tells us to resist the devil, and he will flee from us. But we can't destroy him. Ultimately, only God can do that. Daniel chapter 5, and verse 25. We're told that the little horn shall be broken, but by no human hand. So how will the power of evil ever be broken? Well, it started with the coming of Jesus. It started with him coming into the world and sacrificing his own life and rising from the dead in order to defeat the power of sin and the powers of death. 1 John 3, 8 puts it this way. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil because we could never do that ourselves. So Jesus appeared to do that for us. 1 John 5 and verse 4, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Only God can give us that victory over evil. But we can share in that victory through our faith in Jesus Christ. But only God can destroy evil. Third thing that we need to remember is that the bad actors of Daniel 7 are only types of bad actors to come. What do I mean by types of bad actors to come? Types means that these guys are not the only ones who will come along. There will be others like them. They are just kind of the predecessors. But there will be others who will come along. Let me give you an example. Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. All three of those texts in the Gospels, and that's a couple of hundred years after the time of Antiochus IV. But all three of those texts talk about the abomination of desolation, borrowing that language from Daniel 7 and Daniel 9. Jesus himself says that there will be an abomination of desolation. What's he talking about? He's talking about the Roman destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple which took place in A.D. 70. So you, you had Antiochus who was going to create that abomination of desolation. And then Jesus says, but hold on, there's going to be another one. When the Romans come, something very similar to that is going to happen. So what does that suggest? It suggests that at various periods of history, there will be people like that. There will be people like Antiochus. There will be people like Alexander who will despise God and persecute his people. They're going to come successively over and over throughout the history of the world. John certainly thought that. You read the book of Revelation, and what does he talk about? He talks about beasts, just like in Daniel, that arise out of the sea, he says, and one of them becomes the beast who persecutes the people of God. And John's writing after Jesus. So you've got Antiochus, who is a beast, and then you've got that abomination of desolation in Jesus' time and in the Roman time, and then you've got 
John talking about somebody else coming in the future. And the picture you begin to get is that there's just going to be a succession of people like that. That's not a pretty picture. I wish it were not that way. I'd like to be able to tell you, you know, that uh, by the year 2050, everything's going to be all peaches and roses. And, you know, the world will be fine. There won't be any more evil. There won't be any more hatred. There won't be any more racism. There won't be any more strife among people. There won't be any more sickness or any more disease. I'd like to tell you that, but you know as well as I do, it's not true. And you know that when we go into a period where we have some calm, it usually just means that somebody's planning something because that's always followed by the rise of someone very much like Antiochus. Well, that raises a question. We're going to talk about this more in our classes. Does that mean there might be another little horn in the church's future, in our future? Why not? Why wouldn't there be? We certainly can't rule it out. First John talks about an antichrist who's coming, but he says many have already come, and he kind of leaves that open. We know that there were antichrist people who were opposing Christ in John's own day, but then he talks about an antichrist. It sounds like it's down the road in the future. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul talked about a man of lawlessness. Only place in the Bible that expression ever occurs about a man of lawlessness uh, who, he says, uh, will oppose and exalt himself against every so-called God or object of worship, sounds a lot like Antiochus, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, there's been all kinds of discussion about that. What is, what's Paul talking about? Is he talking about a literal person who's going to come just before the end of the world? Or is he talking about a spirit of lawlessness that will pervade the world? That certainly seems possible, doesn't it? Or is he talking about a succession of people like that who will repeatedly come and plague God's people before the end? I don't know. And I don't think we need to spend a lot of time trying to figure out who that might be. I think what it does mean, though, is that we always need to be strengthening our faith for hard times. We always need to be ready. We always need to be strengthening our faith when such a thing might happen. Here's another application. Like Daniel, we need to be concerned not just about ourselves, but about God's kingdom. Daniel 8, verse 27, the things Daniel saw and heard made him sick. Why? He'd already been told in verse 26 that this vision is for the end. It's not for your time. So why should Daniel be upset? Why should it worry him? The reason it bothered him was because he was concerned about the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of Daniel. And you and I are taught by Jesus, aren't we, to seek first what? His kingdom and his righteousness. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Daniel was seeking the kingdom of God. He wanted the kingdom of God to be built up. He wanted God to be glorified. And that's what we're supposed to seek. We're supposed to want God to be glorified and people to be saved from sin and the church to be built up and to be a force for good in the world. And is that, is that what's uppermost in our hearts? Is that what's uppermost in yours? Or are you more concerned about your own welfare and your own comfort, and your own goals, and your own ambitions, and your own desires. 
Daniel was so concerned about what he saw about God's kingdom in the future made him sick. The noblest calling that we can have, and we all have it, is to strive to serve to build up God's kingdom, no matter what it takes to do it. And then one more application. Like Daniel, regardless of what the future holds, we need to be sure that we do our duty. Look at verse 27. Daniel was overcome and lay sick for some days and was appalled by the vision. What he saw was so disturbing that it made him physically ill. But then he says, when he got over being sick, he said, then I rose and went about the king's business. He got past that, and then he went about the king's business. He went about his daily responsibilities of serving the king, of doing what he was supposed to do. He knew that God would take care of the future, but he needed to do his work today. During World War II, the British people were repeatedly bombarded from the air. And there was a long period of time where there were bombings both day and night and where air raid sirens were going off at all times of the day and night. And, and it just must have been such a tense time. And, and much of the city of London was destroyed. And, and it was just a hard, difficult time for them. And the British government had a partial solution to getting the people through. They had posters printed up that said just two things, keep calm and carry on. And they distributed those things everywhere. Keep calm and carry on. you got to do your duty no matter what. You have to keep your head and you have to do what you know you're supposed to do. That's a good slogan for Christians, don't you think? Keep calm and carry on. It's what Daniel did. It's what we should do because we have a duty to perform for the king, for our king. We have a commission to carry out. Whether that's there's persecution or whether there's a pandemic or there's any sort of trial, we need to be sure that we're not neglecting what God has put us here to do. We need to be sure that we're not ignoring our responsibilities. Keep calm and carry on. Where does calmness like that come from? It comes from having absolute trust that God is in control. It comes from the same place where Daniel got it. That no matter what happens, God is going to see us through it. And if it means the end of our lives, so be it. God will take care of that too. We just keep calm and carry on. It doesn't get any better than that. It can't. Rams and goats and little horns will come and go. But if we trust in God, we will abide forever. Let's stand together and sing. I heard an old